Well, good morning, community of faith. How are we doing today? All right. Hey, it's great to see you. It's great to be with you. I, uh, I genuinely always love the opportunity to get to come and be here with you. Uh, I want to start just by sharing with you. I went to high school in Dallas, and the, uh, the high school that I went to, and I would imagine that many of you had this same experience, but towards the end of my senior year, my high school put out a senior poll. And so it's the type of thing where the senior class got to kind of vote on different categories and vote their classmates into different categories. And so I brought an issue of the bagpipe, which was my high school's newspaper publication. And in this newspaper was the senior poll. And so if you were to open it up, there was tons of different categories. There was things like uh, the biggest complainer, um, the best body, the uh, most dateable, the moodiest, the most likely to be an American gladiator, the worst driver. I mean, there was all these different categories that you could vote your classmates into. I just thought I would share with you what I was voted, okay? My senior year in high school, I was voted into three different categories. The first category, I received third place in the category of just plain nice. So here's what that means. That means that I was nicer than about 376 people in my class, but there were two people that were even nicer than me. So if you're looking for someone nice to hang out with, you go with the first two people. You look at them and you're like, they're nicer than Timothy Atik, for sure. He's about the third nicest person in our class. The second category that I was voted into was the, the category of most sincere, which means that I didn't lie nearly as much as 376 other people. But there were two other people, you could just trust them more. I mean, honestly, they're just, they just more sincere than I was. And then the, the final category, this one hurt a little, honestly, but I was voted second place, uh, second most religious in my class. Apparently, there was someone else who was way more religious than I was. I just want to be like, well, how do you like me now? Like, if you could just see me now, if we could just run this survey back, I wonder if I would edge out that guy for the first most religious in my class. I don't know. The reason I share that with you is when I, when I think about what people were saying when they voted me just plain nice or most sincere, most religious, I think what my senior class was saying was, hey, you know what, Timothy Atik, he's a, he's a good guy. Like, that's what we'll say. He is a, he's, he's a good guy. Like, girls looked at me, and you know what they said? They said, Timothy Atik's the type of guy that I want to marry, which was a subtle slap in the face because it was kind of like, we don't want anything to do with you now, but see me in 10 years, you know. That one hurt, but um, I think that that was their point. You know what? He's a good guy, and I went to college at Texas A&M University. I think most people would look and say, you know what? He was a, he was a good guy. He served at his church. He was, he was nice most of the time, just plain nice, really, when I think about it. Uh, and then even now, I think people would look in College Station where I live and say, you know what? He coaches his kid's soccer team sometimes. The Atiques send meals when we had a baby or something like that, I think for the most part, people might look and say, you know what, he's a good guy. The problem is that I don't want to be known as just a good guy. I want to be known as a godly man. 
Like, that's my goal. My goal isn't just to be a good guy. My goal and my aim is to be a godly man. And let me tell you why that's my desire. And it's my hope that that would be your desire, that you'd be sitting here today saying, you know, I don't want to just be a good woman. I want to be a godly woman. I don't want to just be a good man. I want to be a godly man. The reason that I tell you that is if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to hear Peter's words in 2 Peter 1.3. He says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So what this is saying is that God has unloaded or made available to us all of the resources that we need. You currently have everything you need to live a godly life. And if that's true, why would you ever settle for just being a good guy or a good girl? See, what I'm really talking about when I talk about godliness is this. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. Godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. That's what I want to be known for. I want to be known for a type of devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. And and that's my hope for you. My hope is that you would desire that that you would desire a type of devotion to God in your life that results in a life that is pleasing to him. What I'm really talking about is Jesus not just being a part of your life, but the point and the passion of your life. God is not up in heaven like, you know what? I hope that they just make me a part of their life. Okay, good. They went to community of faith twice this month. I'm a part of their life. Thank goodness. He's not up there like, you know what? He's a good guy. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, you know what? She turned turned out to be a good woman. No, thank goodness. No, God never is okay with just being a part of your life. His aim is to be the point in the passion of your life. And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to give you four keys from four keys for moving from good to godly. And I'm going to do it by stepping into the Old Testament and looking at the life of King David. David is a great guy to learn from. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you probably have still heard of David because you might have heard of the battle of David and Goliath. But there is so much more to the life of David. He was the second king ever of the nation of Israel. He was the best king that Israel ever had. Israel became the dominating force in the world under his reign He was also dubbed by God, the man after my own heart. That's what God labeled David as, the man after my own heart. He's a good person to learn from. We're going to look at a story this morning that's going to help us move from being good to being godly. So if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we are going to be. And I'll tell you this, as we read this story, this story might sound very antiquated or irrelevant because it's a story about some men moving a box on a cart being pulled by some oxen. Like, I don't know if anyone hears that and is like, oh, this story was made for me. But I'm telling you, it has everything to do with our lives. So follow along. This is a story about David moving what is known as the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant. And I will explain that, what that is momentarily. Here's what it says. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 
It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people and were with him, who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The first key for moving from good to godly is this, prioritize God's presence. That's the first point. I would encourage you to write that down. Like if, if God wants to speak to us tonight, don't leave, or this morning, don't leave anything to your memory. Write it down, okay? Prioritize God's presence. The reason I say that is that this is a story about David showing us what he prioritizes as king. This is early on in his reign. And what David does early on in his reign is move the Ark of the Covenant to the capital city, Jerusalem. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you hear us talking about an ark, you might think we're talking about a boat because you've heard of Noah's Ark. We're not talking about a boat this morning. We're talking about the most valuable piece of furniture in the nation of Israel, the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant was a four foot by two and a half foot box. And it was very extravagant. It was very intricately made. I don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of the Ark of the Covenant. All I need you to know is that the Ark of the Covenant, this box, it represented the presence of God. So the, the, this box was placed in a sacred room called the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle and then the temple. So within the house of God, this box was placed in a special room and one person once a year was able to enter into this room and stand before this box. And right on the top of the box, the presence of God was said to reside. Actually, anywhere that this box went, it was said that God was going with the nation of Israel. That is why Numbers 10.33, when it's describing Israel traveling through the wilderness, it says this, so they went out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. So do you hear that anthropomorphic language is used about a wooden box? What does this box go before the nation to do to find a resting place for the nation of Israel? It's because the box represented the presence of God. 
this box belonged in a special room in the tabernacle, but it's been displaced. And what David is showing is what he prioritizes. He's saying, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it where it belongs. It's going to be in the capital city, and the entire nation is going to know that we value God being present in the midst of his people. Now, this was a change from his predecessor, Saul, the first king of Israel. Listen to what David says about the Ark of the Covenant in Saul. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 3. David says this, Let us bring again the Ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. For 20 years, David is saying, we didn't seek God's presence. For 20 years, it hasn't been a priority to us. We have been a nation under God that has not valued God. We haven't valued his presence. And so here David is saying, we are going to value his presence. If you want to move from being good to being godly, prioritize God's presence in your life. Prioritize his presence. Let me ask you, can you look in your past and look at a time in your life where you just say, you know what, God was there. Like, can you think of a time, maybe you were, you were at a camp when you were young, or, or maybe it was a moment of heartache or trial, or maybe it was a church service here at Community of Faith. Can you look at a time in your past where you look back and say, you know what, God was there. I mean, I can look back in my past and I can say, you know what, after college, when, when my life kind of hit rock bottom and I was living in sin, God was there. When our son was in the NICU or we lost a baby to a miscarriage, I can look back and I can remember specific moments where it was just clear to me, God was there. I don't want to get to heaven though one day and get perspective and realize, oh man, God was there way more than I realized. Like, I don't want to get perspective and realize one day God wasn't just there in the monumental moments of time, but he was there even in the monotonous moments. Like he was there when I was watching Netflix. He was there when I was driving in my car. He was there when I went for a run. He was there when I was eating lunch. Like he was there every moment of every single day. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you woke up every day with the belief that God was there? Yesterday, I was driving my kids back from Austin. Me and my my three boys and I, we had kind of a man trip for 24 hours because mama needed some time to herself. And so we got out of town. We went to Austin. I'm driving back yesterday. I mean, my kids are in the back. They're making a bunch of noise. But for the entire drive or most of the drive back, I was just meeting with God. Like God was in the car with me. I was able to sit and just listen because it God doesn't just live in your bedroom. He doesn't just live at church. God is, he he was there. If you want to move from good to godly, we have to shift our mindset from God was there to God is here. Because if you don't make that shift, you're going to keep trying to get back to some moment in time where God was really there. And I think God's like, the same God that was there is here. Wake up. Enjoy the presence of God in your life today. So what does it look like to prioritize this presence? So let me just encourage you to do two things. Number one, 
meet with God every day. Like meet with God every day. Don't let a day go by without meeting with God. If you're too busy someday to meet with God, you're too busy. You're too busy not to meet with God. Let's put it that way. Meet with God every single day. If God were to call you tonight, like if you were to get a phone call and it was like out of area, obviously, and you were to answer it and it wasn't a scammer, and God was like, hey, uh, I want to meet with you tomorrow. What do you think you'd do tonight? You wouldn't sleep a wink, right? Be like, oh my gosh, I am meeting with the God of the universe in the morning. What? I don't even know what to wear to that. But the reality is, is God through his word. What does Jesus tell us in John 15? He says, abide in me and I in you. He's like, I am with you every moment of every day. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's that? That's a promise from God saying, hey, when you wake up tomorrow, I want to meet with you. The God of the universe wants to meet with you, meet with him. And then number two, don't leave God at home. So many of us wake up, we open up this book, we close it, we say amen, and we treat God like a puppy. You know, he kind of walks us to the door and we kind of close the door and then God just kind of sits in the window and tilts his head as he watches us go off to work and then he's there to greet us when we come home. I think God's like, you know, I'm, I'm going with you. Like I will be in your car. I will be working out with you. He doesn't need to work out, but he'll at least be there. He's with you. Prioritize his presence. Number two, tremble at God's holiness. Tremble at God's holiness. Look back at the story. Do you remember what's happening? They are moving the Ark of the Covenant. Verse three, it says, and they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. So all lies on me because I want to make sure that you don't miss this important detail about context, okay? What we just read is that there was a few guys who were going to move the ark, and so they put it on a new cart, and they began to drive the cart. Some oxen are pulling the cart. We read that, and we're like, sounds like a good plan. The problem is that God actually had a specific plan for how the ark was to be moved. This wooden box actually had rings on each corner. Poles were to be slid through the rings, and men were to carry this box holding the poles on their shoulders. What is happening here is you have a group of guys who thinks that they can get it done more efficiently. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're that guy or that girl. You're like, I can just do it faster. Like you can't delegate because you're like, I'll just do it. I'm going to do it because I know how to do it and I'll get it done faster. They're like, we don't need to carry this thing. We're going to put it on a new cart. And we'll have some oxen pull it. And we'll just get there faster. But remember what happens. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So... Let's just all get on the same page about what's happening here. You got a few dudes 
who are trying to move a box. This box is very important to God. They put it on a new cart. It's being pulled. The oxen stumble. And here's this good guy, Uzzah. He sees God's box falling. So what does he do? He puts out a hand to catch it. And what does God do? He kills him. He kills him. Now, real talk. When you hear that that is what happens, that God takes this guy out for catching his box, what's your initial thought? Seems harsh, right? It's like you caught God on a bad day. Like that day, a lot of people were sinning. God was like, fine, you're dead. It's fine, I don't have time for that. If that's your thought, that God was too harsh, it's a misinformed response. Because the reality is God wasn't too harsh. Uzzah was too careless. Because God had actually told his people exactly how to carry the ark because it represented his presence. And you know what God said? Do not touch it because it is holy. If you touch it, you will die. See, what Uzzah is showing us is that he didn't have an accurate understanding of the holiness of God. See, if you want to move from good to godly, my encouragement to you is to tremble at God's holiness. Don't miss what I'm telling you here. Your view of God will determine your response to God. That's the way that relationships work. Your view of a, of a person determines your response to a person. Your view of God determines your response to God. So if you don't want to have anything to do with God, if you're not interested in a relationship with God, if you're not a Christian, then the reality is that your view of God is pretty small. It's so small that you have no desire to interact with them. And if you look around and you see someone having a big response to God, you know why that is? It's because they have a big view of God. If you want to move from good to godly, you have to have a big view of the holiness of God. What are we talking about when we talk about God being holy? Because if we were to sit down and I were to say, hey, what does it mean that God is holy? There's a good chance that you would either say, I don't really know, or you'd say, I think it means that God is pure. It's not really what it means. That's an aspect of it. But when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about the otherness of God. Holy in the, he the Hebrew word for holy is the Hebrew word kadosh. It means to be singled out or cut off. When we talk about God being holy, we are talking about God being singled out in his greatness, we're talking about him being cut off from all humanity in terms of his greatness and splendor. When we talk about God being holy, we are talking about God being so other than anyone or anything that we could ever know. Isaiah puts it this way. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what God's saying? He's saying, I'm not like you. Like I've made you to be like me, but you need to understand that you and me, I am so other than you in our finite minds cannot even begin to scratch the surface of the beauty and the splendor 
in the greatness of God. So when we talk about God being holy, we are talking about God being so other than anything that we can truly comprehend. I'll illustrate it this way, okay? I don't know if you've had this question roll through your mind while I've been preaching, but you might sit there and think, you know what, I wonder what kind of car that guy drives. Just in case you wanted to know what kind of car the executive director of Breakaway Ministries drives, I drive a 2015 Hyundai Sonata. And it's a pretty sweet car. I'm going to tell you, I got the top of the line, Hyundai Sonata. Spent somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 on it. It's got a panoramic sunroof. It's got seat coolers. I mean, this car, pretty great. Top of the line, Hyundai Sonata. Now, follow me on this. Let's just say that on our best days, like you live your best day, you live your best life today, you're that 2015 Hyundai Sonata, okay? That's you. That's me on our best day. So if that's us, if we're a top of the line 2015 Hyundai Sonata, what must that make God? Probably a Mercedes S class, right? Starting at about 100 grand. No. God is an Airbus 380 private jet designed by a Saudi prince that has a parking space for a Rolls Royce, a private concert hall, and a prayer room that turns towards Mecca automatically no matter where it is in the sky. When we talk about God being holy, we're talking about him being so other than we are. The interesting thing is that jet never made it to production. So you can't even Google images to try and get your mind about what we're around, what we're talking about with this private jet designed by Saudi Prince. God is the exact same way and infinitely more. We can't even begin to scratch the surface of just how loving and great and glorious and beautiful and merciful, and wrathful, and just God truly is. He is holy, holy, holy. That's why. Just watch the way that people respond to God in the Bible when they see him or hear him. Like the nation of Israel, they are gathered together, and God speaks from the mountain. And you know what the nation of Israel says to Moses? Moses We almost died. We made it. He spoke. We thought we weren't going to make it. We did make it. So here's the deal, Moses. We don't know that we'll make it through a second time. You go and talk to God for us. Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of God. And when he sees God, you know what Isaiah automatically says? He says, whoa, I am lost and I'm a foul mouth. Do you have anyone in your life, like you meet for lunch and you're like, you know what? I'm just realizing sitting sitting with you, I'm a foul mouth. Like, I think I'm lost. Or Ezekiel sees God and just collapses on the ground. Like his knees just buckle. Is there anyone in your life, they walk through the room and you're just like, like you just like hit the ground. Like you don't even see it coming. Your knees just give way. You get up and you're like, I am so sorry. I just, that's just what my body did when I saw you. John in the book of Revelation gets a vision of the glorified Christ. He falls on the ground. He's like, I'm dead. And Jesus is like, you're really not. You can get up now. You realize that if Jesus Christ walked through those doors right now, you wouldn't sit there and be like, oh, so that's Jesus. It's pretty good. 
No, you know that this place, your, your knees would know exactly what to do. They'd buckle. Because you have been made to know him and worship him. When we talk about God being holy, it's important to remember that Jesus is friend. But he's also king of kings and lord of lords. I remember when I was a kid, I used to go with my dad each week. He would play racquetball with a friend. And so I'd tag along because his friend would bring his son and we'd hang out and play together. My dad called the local YMCA and reserved a racquetball court. And so we'd go up to the YMCA and there were two high school kids playing on the racquetball court that my dad had reserved. And so they, these high school kids were just playing right into my dad's time. So my dad politely knocked on the glass and just told him that it was time. And this high school kid gave my dad the middle finger. The problem with flicking my dad off is that at the time, my dad was the chief psychologist of the Dallas County Juvenile Department, which is the place that teenagers go who have not done right. And my dad's friend was a Dallas County judge and an attorney. So when that high school kid came out, my dad very clearly and firmly informed that kid who he had just flicked off. And fear struck that kid. And that kid's friend was like, dude, you can't do that. He was far too careless in the presence of someone who commanded his respect. And I wonder if the same is true with God sometimes. We are far too careless in his presence that God absolutely is loving and merciful and gracious, but he is just, and he is holy, holy, holy. There's times where I'll just be flying in hot to my quiet time with God, and I'll just kind of jump in and just start chattering. And then I'll pray, and as I pray, I'm like, and God, you are holy, holy. And as I hit the second holy, it just kind of slows me down, and it changes my posture because I'm beginning to remember who I'm actually communicating with. And it's good to remember that God is holy. If you want to move from good to godly, tremble at his holiness. Number three, treasure God's commands. So we have prioritized God's presence. We have tremble at his holiness. And now we have treasure God's commands. David In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, this is a different version of the same story. Listen to what David says about moving the ark. He says this, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Why? Because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. What's David saying? He's saying, guys, we were far too careless. God told us how to do this. We knew how to move the ark, but we just thought we could do it more efficiently. We wanted to do God's will our way. And so what do they do? They do it. They do it right. You want to move from good to godly, treasure God's commands. Listen to what Pastor Charles Swindoll says. He says this. He says, if the Lord cared enough to write it and cared enough to preserve it, he cares enough about the details to have you and me pull it off precisely his way. Isn't that interesting? 
He cares enough for us to pull it off precisely his way. Do you know what the problem is? The problem is this. French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre puts it this way. He nails us. He says, man is the being whose project is to be God. Do you hear that? Man is the being whose project. That's our project. That's what we wake up and put our hands to. Man is the being whose project is to be God. You know what that means? We want to call the shots. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. God says, this is how you do it. And we're like, you know what? I found a better way. Why would we move the ark on our shoulders when we could put it on a cart? Some oxen can do the work instead of us. We won't have to go to a chiropractor if we let the oxen do it. I found a better way. See, what God has done is he's given us his word so that we can know his ways for accomplishing his will. What we want to do is we want to do God's will our way. Like if I were to ask you, hey, do you want to live inside of God's will? You'd probably say, most people here would say, yeah, of course. But then if I were to ask you, okay, so are you studying God's word to know his ways for accomplishing his will? That might be more of a question mark. See, when we get down to it, many of us, we want to be in God's will, but we just want to do it our way. So there's times, let me ask you, is there, are there things in this book that God has commanded that if I were to read them to you, you might say, you know, I just don't feel convicted about that. I just don't feel convicted about that. I don't feel convicted about how I treat alcohol. I don't feel convicted about what my girlfriend or boyfriend and I are doing physically. You know, I just don't feel convicted about how I talk to my spouse. I just don't feel convicted about cutting some corners at work. You know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying God's commands must bow to my feelings. What you're saying is, I want to do God's will, but I want to do it my way. But see, God's commands don't bow to our feelings. Our feelings must bow to his commands. Just because we don't feel convicted about something doesn't mean we shouldn't feel convicted about it. The issue isn't with God's commands. It might be with our heart. Our hearts might have become callous to God's word in his ways and his will. You want to move from good to godly, you have to treasure his commands. Notice the wording. What I didn't say was obey his commands. I said treasure his commands because to treasure something is to know the value of something. So when I say treasure his commands, I'm saying see the value in actually knowing his word so you can know his ways and accomplish his will. Here's the thing. Pastor friend Todd Wagner puts it this way. God is not out to rip you off. He wants to set you free. Do you realize that? Like God's ways, his commands are not meant to rip you off. God simply wants to set you free. Like if you were to go and read this story, what do we see? We see David and his friends dancing and singing before God as they move the ark. What do you see? You see obedience and joy married together. I remember... A while back, I was talking to one of my sons, and there was a kid at school that was being mean 
to my son. And so as we sat at dinner, I just encouraged him. I said, hey, man, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to go to school and talk to that kid and just say, hey, look, I just want to ask, is there something that I have done that has caused you to treat me this way? If so, I want to make sure I ask your forgiveness. But I see the way that you're treating me, and it's not right. And I saw the fear in my son's eyes. I saw the fear of him playing out what I was asking him to do. And what it was, I could see that he didn't fully trust that I was actually trying to set him free. Because I know that when bitterness sets into the soul, it's like a weed that will overtake anything unhealthy. And there was bitterness starting to grow in my son towards this person in his class. I was trying to set my son free. He was worried that I was trying to rip him off. And I wonder if the same is true when we read this word from our heavenly father sometimes, if we're like, oh, you know what? It's 2021, man, that will rip me off. And God's like, it doesn't matter what year it is. I'm just trying to set you free. Treasure God's commands. And finally, reject man's opposition. Reject man's opposition. I don't have time to read the rest of the story. Just listen to verse 16. It says this, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So what you need to know is McCall is David's wife. She looks out the window. She sees her husband, the king, singing and dancing. And David comes into the house and she lights him up. You are making a fool of yourself and you're making a fool of me. I'm connected to you. You look absolutely ridiculous. And what does David say? You know what? He says, let me just fill you in. I am more than happy to become even more undignified than that. Because I'm not seeking your approval. I'm not seeking the approval of the rest of the people of the nation of Israel. I'm here to glorify God. And that's how I worship him. He rejects man's opposition. Here's what you need to know. No one has a problem with you being a good guy or a good girl. No one has a problem with that. Everyone will look at you trying to be a good person and be like, way to go, good for you. People will absolutely have a problem with you seeking to be a godly man or a godly woman. People will look at you and be like, you know, you're too extreme. Like you're taking the Bible thing way too seriously. And here's what people will say. They'll say, you know what? You're too legalistic. That's what Christians will say. Christians will look at you and be like, that's too legalistic for me. Let's just be clear on what legalism is. Legalism is following rules, believing that you have to follow the rules in order, in order to earn God's approval and favor. Legalism is ratifying a set of traditions saying, without these traditions, God will not love you or accept you. That's what legalism is. When you obey God's commands, knowing that he already loves you and accepts you, and you take his commands seriously, that's not legalism. That's just biblical Christianity and a pursuit of godliness. And so let me just encourage you. People will not want to be convicted by your life. And so opposition might come. Let me encourage you to reject it. 
what do we do with a talk like this? Okay, let me just encourage you to do three things this week. Number one, before you leave today, meet with God. Meet with God. Prioritize his presence. If God is here and he wants to meet with you, then meet with God before you leave. Number two, when you get home, let me encourage you to share with a friend or share with your spouse commands from God that you want to fully obey this week in order to walk in freedom and display your love for God. And then third, every day this week, let me encourage you to to get out of bed and get onto your knees and talk to God and declare to God who you know him to be. Say, God, you are holy, holy, holy. And just see how your posture before God changes and see how you begin to change as you view God as a holy God. And then I'll finish today just by sharing this. Uh, Some of you might hear me talking about being godly instead of good. And you're like, I don't care about being godly. I'm actually perfectly content being a good man or a good woman. Here's the only problem with that. If you don't have a relationship with God and you're sitting there saying, you know what? I don't care about being godly. I just want to be good. Mark 10, 18, Jesus says this. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Watch this. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Which means if you were to look up in God's dictionary, the word good, you would just see a picture of him. So you might be good in your own eyes or in the opinions of people around you, but in God's eyes, there is none good except him. Good in God's eyes is perfection. So if you believe that one day you'll stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You say, I've lived a good life. I think God might say you haven't lived a good life because a good life is a perfect life. And only one person did that, and that's Jesus Christ. The reason that we prize Jesus, the reason he is at the center of our faith is because he has made a way for those who are not good to be made right with the only one who is. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth. He lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved to die. He rose and conquered the grave so that you and I could have a relationship with God. We talked about prioritizing God's presence. Jesus came to earth and was forsaken from the presence of God so that we could be invited into it. We talked about trembling at God's holiness. Jesus was and is holy. And he came to earth to seek and to save those of us, all of us who were unholy. And it's solely through knowing Jesus that you can be made right with a God who is holy, holy, holy. We talked about treasuring God's commands. Jesus obeyed all of God's commands completely and perfectly so that all of us who never could fulfill all of God's commands could still have a relationship with him where we are known, loved, and accepted. And we talked about rejecting man's opposition. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Do you know him? If you don't, the invitation this morning to you is to come and to know him as the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I thank you that you went to the cross. I thank you that you bore our shame. You were crucified. You 
died on a cross, were put in a tomb, and then you walked out of it victoriously. Our hope is solely found in you. Lord, I pray that that we would never settle for being good people if you, God, have given us everything we need to live a godly life. I pray that if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would turn to you as the only one who is truly good. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.